Hi, everyone. This is Dawn Richard, also known as The Awakening with Dawn, and this is the Wake Up to Real Love podcast, where we share stories of struggles and triumphs in love, sex, and relationships, along with expert advice to create more conscious connections. I am super honored today to have my guest, Kelly Nielsen, also known as The Grief Guru. Welcome, Kelly. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah. Kelly um, has a really... Um, a really difficult story and a really inspiring story. And she, she did not grow up with aspirations of becoming the grief guru, but after experiencing divorce, bankruptcy, and cancer twice, she felt like she'd learned a thing or two about overcoming adversity. And she lost her mom to suicide in 2017. And a year and a half later, her 20-year-old son died from an accidental drug overdose. Kelly, um, grief, of course, came in like a flood, uh, but she learned so much and she will share a lot of her story, but now she teaches others um, to use her developed grief relief process to navigate whatever hard season they're facing. She teaches others to move forward on purpose, in purpose, and design the life they truly love. Kelly, welcome, welcome, welcome. Yeah, thank you. It's my honor and pleasure. When you when you hear somebody else say it, do you think I can't believe that was my life? That this is my life? Sometimes, sometimes it's so woven into my DNA though, you know, that like I'm very familiar and comfortable with my story and with my experience and without sounding arrogant, like I earned, you know what I mean? Like I earned those stripes. Like I like yeah. to, I have engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat with grief. Like I am intimately acquainted with um, heartache and grief and loss. And so, yeah, when somebody reads my story, it's it's not a surreal out of body thing because I have the scars to show for it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Very personal. Yeah. So how, I mean, you you had a lot of struggles growing up, right? Mm -hmm. And um, because we had talked before, and you said your mom and dad had had a conflicted relationship, and so there were things just within you that you had to learn how to sort of deal with the adversity of that situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, mostly addiction. I mean, addiction is a common theme in all of these situations. And my father um, was and is an addict, and his addiction and um, he actually got in, he passed out behind the wheel when I was like five years old and had a wow. really bad car accident that shattered the bottom four discs in his back. So wow. we began one medical complication after another, after another. So that was like a cloud kind of over our family. And then his alcoholism, um, he actually sobered up quote unquote when I was in fifth grade, but it just transitioned to pain meds and doctor prescribed and sanctioned pain meds. I mean, rightfully so, because he was in a significant amount of pain in his back, but um, it just changed, you know, the addiction, even, and, the, and that's interesting and ironic that even though he hasn't had alcohol in a long time, in, I'd have to do the math since I was in fifth grade, a long time, mm -hmm. um, but the addiction didn't go away. It just transitioned right. into a different type of addiction and all the effects relationally the effects on their marriage, their marriage was incredibly codependent, incredibly toxic, incredibly just unhealthy in every kind of way. 
And then that compounded with his kind of worsening health over the years, took a real drastic toll on our entire family, their marriage, but really tragically, fatally, my mom's mental health and well-being. She just was his main caregiver. And because they were so incredibly codependent, um, she didn't have a great support system outside of their relationship. And in fact, um, the very last conversation I had with her, I said, mom, what are we going to do to get you some help? What, what are we going to do to make sure support you need? And are, are you going to go to a counselor? Are you going to go to a Christian women's group? What are we going to do for you? Had, had she ever gone to Al-Anon? We all did a little bit. Um, we sobered up, quote unquote. Um, when I was in fifth grade, we went through the family portion of what he went through or whatever. And uh-huh. she read a lot of books. She really liked to read. She was just a very, she didn't have a lot of friends. She didn't have a big social circle. You know, they didn't go to church and that kind of thing. And then with his declining health, it really limited their ability to even do things. Um, so yeah, she, she wasn't, she didn't have a lot of outside sources of support. It really was me and my sister, you know, and, um, as I got older and she and I got closer, I, I was kind of her main support. And so that's, that's an interesting thing that we don't talk about either is that I didn't even realize the full weight of I was carrying right. of their toxic relationship and, and her mental health and me trying to like hold her up because he's holding him, you know? I didn't realize until after she was gone, like how, what, what a toll that was taking on me, um, emotionally and even physically the energy it was taking to be, a, you know, in the mix of that, um, really unhealthy relationship. Uh-huh. So did you have any, um, any clue that she had suicidal thoughts? No. And this is the other hard part why, um, why grief was really hard for me with my mom is because I can't even sit here and tell you conclusively right now today that a hundred percent that she killed herself. Mm -hmm. We put it at 85 to 90%. But there just are a whole lot of um, suspicious for lack of a better word um, details that don't line up. For example, the bottle of pills they found next to her body was not what she had overdosed on. It was not the drug that was in her system. Oh, makes sense. Yeah. Um, wow. She was in a, she was in a room and, um, my dad said he wasn't concerned for her safety yet. He broke the door open and, um, had checked on her several times throughout the night. And, and his description to us was, I checked on her and she had a pulse and she was warm. And then I came back and checked on her again and she had a pulse and she was warm. He did that and repeated that several times through the night and then said he came at five in the morning and she had passed away. Now, if you didn't know anything was wrong, if you had no suspicion to worry that some, why would you Why be- would you be doing that? Yeah. So the police ruled it a suicide. Um, I have no physical evidence and no, my dad hasn't, you know, and I can't even, so my point in all of that is like, the short answer is no. I, like I said, I spoke to her the day before. I literally spoke to her the day before, asked her about getting support for herself. She said she was open to getting support. She wanted to check out a women's Christian group. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a date that night and she said, oh, I can't wait to hear about it. Call me tomorrow and let me know what happened. And that's the last conversation. I ever had with my mom. I got a call 
uh, at six the next morning from my dad, letting me know that he had found her passed away next to a bottle of pills. And how did your grief overtake you in that, in that time? Yeah. Well, in that moment, first of all, I think, um, surprising is how physical it is mm -hmm. and how your brain just really stops working I mean I had never experienced shock like that before uh -huh. February 1st in Minnesota and it was six in the morning and I remember going into my closet to try to to try to put on clothes because I in my head I was gonna go drive over there and I couldn't do it like I couldn't put pants on I couldn't put shoes on like the mechanics of my brain just work when I finally did drive over to their house, you know, 45 minutes, I kept turning down the wrong streets. It just was, it was like you were in a fog. It was, yeah, it was really yeah. out of body and in a fog. And, um, so yeah, the way I describe it is that grief came in like a flood and it had its way with me. Um, I think for a lot of reasons, because it was so shocking, because there were so many unanswered questions, because I had no skills for dealing with grief because nobody had taught me how to do this. Right. Um, and I had to, I was, I was in a leadership role at an organization. I had to resign. I took a different role at a different, I was in no shape to lead anybody. Right. I couldn't sleep. Um, the physicalness of it. I literally remember laying in my bed and feeling like my bed was going to swallow me whole, like heaviness of it. I can't, the words aren't doing it justice. Like, but I just remember nobody told me about how physically you feel like you have the flu, you can't concentrate, you're exhausted all the time, but you sleep, like it's just awful. It's like zombie land, you know, you just kind of go through the motions. And I lived in that state for several months. I did not find relief or help in anyone. And I am and was even then a person of faith. And I just could not find relief anywhere. I really couldn't. And no, no, like supportive friends, no groups at church or no, well, you said you didn't it was, work. it was all so tragic. It was like, it was too much for uh -huh. the, you know, the joke that we had was my episode was like an, it was like an episode of Dateline, you know, like nobody could believe mm. that she was gone and the circumstances. And then there were all these questions around my dad and we were waiting for the autopsy and like, oh, and then he started dating someone like, you know, a month or two after she died. I mean, it was just this Wow. It was real. And yeah, so wow. my friends, you know, didn't know what to say. It was kind of too big for them. And this isn't why I'm so passionate about what I do too, is because we as a society, as a culture, we don't do grief well. No, we don't. How to do it ourselves. We don't know how to be there for people who are grieving. We don't know how to be friends. We don't know how to be support. Like everyone. We don't know how to talk about it. It's one of those things that where like, uh, it's, it's almost it's almost like uh, with this, these racial, racial issues that are still ongoing. I mean, they've been going on for centuries, um, but it's like, don't, I, I feel uncomfortable, so I'm just not going to say anything. Right. People either don't say things because you've struck something deep in them that they don't want to face, and so they don't right. want to get used to it, or right. they're afraid to say the wrong thing and offend you or hurt your feelings, so they say nothing. Nothing. And that which is worse, right? It compounds the pain because I found myself so incredibly alone. This big, awful thing had happened in my life and none of my friends could relate and they didn't know what to say. And my sister was going through her own grief process and whatever. I felt incredibly alone in it. Alone. 
I did, couldn't find tools to help me. And I, so I went to a suicide support group, which ended up being awful. Honestly, I went, I went there and I was first of all, so encouraged because everyone around the table knew exactly what I was going through. And that was comforting to be around, just get it right. Um, but everyone in that room were having the same experience I was having. They were just barely going through the motions. They were still in the zombie state that I was in. The only difference is for me, it was like six weeks, eight weeks after it had happened for them. It was six, eight months, or even there were people in there who their loved one had committed suicide years ago. Wow. were looking just like me. And that I remember leaving being petrified, like, oh my gosh, is this what my life is just going to be now? Like, I'm just going to be sad for the rest of my life. Like I'm just going to go through the motions and miss my mom terribly. And, you know, like I, I began to believe the lie that there was no, that it was hopeless, that that's just what life was going to be. Um, and I, and why, and why do you, why do you think, um, why do you think that people get stuck? Exactly that, because they believe the lie that they can't get better or that somehow them getting better means they didn't love the person they lost. Mm -hmm all these lies and misconceptions about grief that are so pervasive in our society and culture and like how common is it to hear oh grief never ends grief never ends you just learn to live with it right that's not true and but if you believe that that is what you will experience right so so and i didn't even realize i did not realize i was believing a lie i did not realize that i was putting a limit on my own self and like actually hindering my ability to heal by believing that until I was, thank God, I met a woman who was healed. And I saw an example in my, with my own eyes in front of my own face, who, of somebody who went through something worse than what I went through. And she was healed and whole and happy and had a positive outlook for the future. And I was like, oh, I mean, you hear about those light bulb moments. I literally think there was a light bulb over my head because it was just like, if she can do it, I can do it. And I made the conscious choice right then and there that I would get better, that I would figure it out. Mm -hmm. As long as it took, no matter how far and wide, if she did it, I was going to do it. And and I decided for myself that that's what I was going to do. And that's the biggest first step that most people don't do. They just let their feelings of sadness kind of perpetuate and dictate that they're always going to be sad. They don't decide that they're, that healing's possible for them and that they're going to do the work to get through to the other side of healing. And so they just stay in this out to sea sort of experience. Um, yeah. But if, if somebody, while you're talking about it, I was just thinking if you, if you say somebody who's just lost somebody, yeah, you know, Oh my gosh, this is so awful. I'm so sorry for you. Um, but you know, there's life on the other side. You wouldn't mm-hmm. want to hear that. You right. wouldn't want to hear that right away. So like, what's, what's this balance of allowing people to feel the grief and the deep sadness and the anger, you know, I mean, all, because the anger, the confusion, the fog, all of that stuff, it's like those stages of grief that people have to go through. Yeah. It's like, you can't deny your feelings. Right. You have to process through them. So I, I agree and disagree because 
first of all, I don't agree in, with the whole five stages of grief thing. That has not been my experience. I don't, and I certainly don't think they go in a linear pattern. That no, like, it's not. No, it's not linear. No, no. Um, and I also, well, well, I agree that you can't be like, oh, well, they died. I'm so sorry, but you need to, you need to just get over it. That's not what I'm saying. But it is really important. I feel like the sooner you can understand that it's possible that you can get to the other side, the better. I'm not saying to put a prescribed time limit on it, but one of the most powerful things. So when my son died, um, I, thankfully I had a great pastor that I was connected to and she had lost her husband 15 years prior to cancer. And she shared with me her story and she shared, she said, Kelly, for her, it took her 18 months. She said, this is going to be incredibly hard. You're going to have to contend for your healing. You're going to have to be, you know, protective of your environment. You're going to, you've been through a trauma. You're going to, you know, you're going to have to treat yourself as though you've been through a trauma. But, um, she's like, I can pinpoint the day and time where I knew I was completely healed. And for her, it was 18 months and just her telling me that. And so this is just the type of person I am. I was like, if it's 18 months for her, it's going to be faster for me because are you a little competitive Kelly? <laughs> No, I'm just, it's not competitive, but it's like, that's how we are in human nature. They thought the four minute mile was impossible until somebody, right. and you could do it. And so, you know, the fact that I saw that the woman in the first place, Immaculate, who had, you know, survived and healed, I was like, if she can do it, I can do it. And now here I had another testimony of somebody who said, I got completely healed. And for me, my process took 18 months. And I took that to say, okay, like, then I'm going to lean in with everything I have, I'm going to do the hard work. I'm going to process the emotions. I'm going to just, you know, cooperate with this process and believing that it's going to be faster than 18 months. And it was, it was significantly faster. And that's, that's when and why I was like, this needs to be shared. People need to learn this. You know, that these are skills that can be learned. These are muscles that can be developed. There are things that you can do that can accelerate the healing. And there are things that you can do that can hinder or even stop your healing process. And nobody talks about that. Right. With every other thing, we understand we have to participate with it. But when it comes to grief, we just think we just lay back and let it happen to us and wait for it to be over. That is not how any other process works. So yeah, yeah but, you, but you know what, Kelly, I think it, I think it relates to us being able to process our emotions, period. Right. You know, because I'm thinking about the people who stay stuck, they yeah. probably are still in a sense of denial or what if, or, uh, you know, shoulda, coulda, woulda. I mean, all of those things where we keep ourselves stuck back there instead of saying, okay, what do I need to do to move myself forward? Right. Because I mean, this is, this is the biggest part of why I started this podcast is because I know people don't know how to um, honor and examine their own emotional well-being and welfare because, right. you know, because so many of us are taught to suppress your emotions, <laughs> you know, don't cry, don't yell, don't, you know, don't play, don't, you know, it's just like we're, we're kept in these little boxes yeah. And we don't, we don't allow ourselves to feel the fullness of what's really going on inside of our bodies. And so yeah. that's why I think the work that you're doing, because you're not saying don't do the work. I mean, when you were talking about doing the work, 
I want, I want you to, I want you to talk about what is the work to get through this process. What is the work that you had to do? Yeah. Well, so the five step process that I developed and work with people on the first step is establishing your framework. And that is really the work of it deciding for yourself what you believe and what you want. And those two things, if you did nothing else, if you really sat and unpacked, what do I believe about this? And give yourself room to to decide if the beliefs that you're operating from are based in truth or based in lies, or if they're serving you or hurting you. Because a practical example of that is I believe with my mom that I couldn't I wasn't going to recover. Like this was just my life. I believed that. And that was hindering me. And so that had to be revealed and exposed to me that that was a lie and that's mm-hmm. truth that I could partner with and be accelerated in my healing. Right. So that's a process to like, look at your beliefs around this and, and be open enough and willing to let someone lovingly show you if there's some lies hidden in there that are keeping you stuck. Well, and do, don't you think also maybe uh, one of the beliefs, because we talked about this last week when you and I talked, was that if I, if, if I um, find some joy in life, if I start feeling some happiness, that that in a sense is dishonoring the person that I lost. That's a huge one. That's a huge one. And same with especially parents who've lost kids. You can believe the lie that it's your fault or your, you know, that that you're carrying some responsibility for that. Um, and you could be hanging on to anger, unresolved anger, anger at the person who died, anger at yourself, anger at God. Those are all, and so that goes into the second part of the framework, which is really deciding what do you want? What do you want? Like, even then, what do you want? And I learned the first go round with my mom about all the, there's a lot of traps hidden in the what do you want question, right? Because if you decide that you want justice or you want answers or you want sympathy or you want, you know, there's a handful of things that you can want, but it won't necessarily bring you to a place of peace and restoration of joy. And so we look at those things honestly and everybody, it's everybody's own journey. You can want answers and it's not even wrong to want answers. Our minds are built to connect the dots. Like our minds right. are the need to make sense of things, right? but you can decide when your pursuit of answers is robbing you of peace and joy. You know, like after the conclusion I had to come to with my mom, I exhausted all the things that I could exhaust to find out any answer I could find out. And I was at the end of the information that was available to me. So I could either continue and try to find answers that weren't available to me and let it rob me of peace and joy, or, you know, lay down that need or that entitlement for answers. Because what I tell people is you can make answers your goal and you could get the answers or never get the answers, you know, but I know people who get the answers and they still don't have peace. Mm -hmm. So be careful if getting the answers is the thing that you're reaching for. But if you decide that peace and restoration of joy is the, your aim, then you line everything else up to that end and you learn to remove and eliminate anything that isn't in alignment with that restoration of peace and joy. But all these other things, and we talk a lot about unforgiveness and because if you're carrying unforgiveness, um, that is going to definitely, you're going to, you will not move beyond that. So you have to work through 
that anger stuff or, you know, are you mad at your, are you blaming yourself? Are you, and I did all of it. I really, when my mom died, I was really angry with God and I had to wrestle through that and, and deal with it. I was really incredibly angry with my dad. I was angry with the police who just saw a 62 year old woman in a bottle of pills and just called it a suicide and didn't ask any questions. I was angry at the, you know, the medical community. My dad had been in the psych ward the, right before this happened. They were holding him against his, like, they were trying to hold him against his will. And he raised a holy fit and threatened to sue and they let him go. And four days later, my mom was dead. Wow. To sue the hospital system. And the tricky part about anger is it feels so productive, right? When you have sorrow and it's so sad and heavy, anger felt like an improvement. I'm like, oh, at least I'm up. At least I'm doing things like this is, this feels good. This feels productive, but it can be a trap. You know, if you, if anger is where you land and you never move beyond that. Um, so for me, I finally got to the end of myself where I had to count the cost and realize what was the cost going to be? And did I have it to pay emotionally, financially, what was going to the cost? Gonna, Cause I was like this close to going to the media, you know, with this story about my death hospital and everything that happened. But I realized like I did not have, I didn't have the resources to fight that fight. And I was being asked to fight that fight. And I just made the decision that for me, getting back to peace and joy was more important than these other things. And so then I made that my aim. And that, all that stuff that I just described is not for the faint of heart. Like that is gnarly, hard, heavy stuff. And that is step one of step process so I you're like step one I can't even get past step one but step one is the like everything else is about protecting and reinforcing step one but step one is the one that most people don't do and skip over and they just inherit their beliefs about from what their family has told them or what society has told them or whatever and they don't take the time to analyze for themselves, do the inventory and make the conscious choice about what they believe and what they want and just own the journey. You know, we, it's so easy for us to play victim and like this awful thing happened to me. So now I can never be better because this awful thing happened to me. Instead of saying, I tell my clients all the time, trauma is not your fault, but healing is your responsibility. Yeah. I love that. Can you repeat that please? Trauma is not your fault, but healing is your responsibility. Yeah. You cannot control what happens to you, you, but you are responsible for how you move forward from it. And I don't care who you are. There are people around you that love you and that are depending on you and need you to be healthy and whole and living your best life. So if you can't even find the energy or gumption to do it for yourself, do it for the other people that are still here that love you and need you to be better. And nothing makes me more sad than to see parents who have multiple kids and they lose a child and they just give up. They just curl they stop up. Living. They stop living and they're just existing. And it's like, they're so grieved over the child they lost that they're losing. And then now their kids have to deal with losing a sibling. And now their parents are basically, you know, not around or available. It's, it's the biggest tragedy because it, it multiplies, it compounds the impact of the tragedy. So, so now, so now when, uh, when your son died, did you, did you find yourself struggling with that? 
because you also have a daughter. Yeah. And my daughter is the reason um, that I'm so passionate about this and teaching parents because my daughter said to me, and this will stay with me for, she was, this will stay with me for the rest of my life. The very first words my daughter said to me when we found out my son had passed away was, you're not going anywhere, are you mom? Her first thought at 12 years old was that I was not going to be able to manage this, that I wasn't going to be able to handle the weight of this and that I was going to take my own life. Mm -hmm. And what, what 12 year old should have to think that way, you know, uh -huh. and that was the very first, the, the first words I heard from anyone after Quentin died was my other living child sharing her scary. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe that, you know, lit a fire even more so on me that like, okay, like, and I said, <laughs> I just kept saying, no, God, no, like, it's too much, God, it's too much. And she said, then she said, mom, God will never give you more than you can handle. 12 years old, this wow. girl said. And I said, I just wish God would stop thinking so highly of me. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't want to be stronger. I'm feeling really, really weak right now. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know who you think I am, God, but like you got the wrong one. But I mean, it'll stay with me forever. And it, it, it helps to give me purpose and fire and fuel that like, you know, I don't have a choice. I don't have a choice. Like I didn't ask for this. It seems more than I can bear but I have to bear it. And I have to believe that I have what it takes to bear it. And, and that's the other thing, like a little bit farther down the road is like, like when your worst fear happens to you, when the thing that you're most afraid of in life and it happens to you and you're still somehow alive and even standing, it sort of gives you this like invincible thing. You know, I just was like, you took my mom and my son within two years of each other. Like, what else can, you know what I mean? <laughs> it just yeah. in perspective, like yeah. what else possibly happen? Yeah. You know, people cannot, you can't, you can't make me have a bad day. You can't do it. You cannot do it. <laughs> like, well, but that, but that's the thing. That's the thing, Kelly, that, you know, when you're talking about, you didn't have it, you know, you you were saying, I don't have a choice. I have to do this. I have to show up. I have to be there for my daughter. But everybody has these same choices when they're put in these situations. And right. so, you know, I mean, this is, this is one of, this is one of my questions to, you know, God is why do some people make one kind of choice that helps propel them to restoration and peace? And another person makes another choice that keeps them stuck. Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with examples you know, like the reason I was able to make that choice in that moment is because thankfully I had had the example of Immaculate, you know, not less than a year prior and I had learned these things. So I could, I knew that it was possible. I knew that, you know, and, and that's why I'm so passionate about this because unfortunately most people don't, nobody's told them that it's possible. Nobody's told them that you can recover from this and you actually have a responsibility to recover from this. And do you want to, do you want to just mention, um, Immaculate's story just so people have, yeah. 
Yeah, so Immaculate um, survived the Rwandan genocide and she was actually hid away in a bathroom with eight other women, a small bathroom, eight women for nine days. And every- How many? Nine? Ninety. Ninety. Three months hid away in a bathroom, like emaciated, like just was a pastor in a different village that hid these women. And even his own family didn't know they were in there because he couldn't even, I mean, people were turning on people and exposing, trying to find these, um, they were trying to wipe out an entire people group, but they did, they killed nearly a million people. And then they, they were broadcasting it over the radio. And so she literally heard over the radio, every person she'd ever known, her entire family being massacred in a village nearby. I heard her speak and share her horrific tale of, uh, you know, enduring that and surviving that. Resilience. But, but more, the, the part that got me was her healing journey afterwards, how she walked through this journey of healing and forgiveness. And I mean, just think about the trauma of every day thinking people are coming to kill you and every day, you know, like. And every uh, single person that you love is lost. Yeah. And then coming, you, yeah, you come out and nothing like virtually no one that you know is alive anymore they've all been killed they've all been just wiped out your entire um people group and she walked through such a, a journey of healing and forgiveness that she actually went and met the gentleman who killed her family in prison and wow. forgave him face to face you know um so how? I mean, she leaves How? the rest of us, she leaves the rest of us without excuses. She leaves the rest of us without excuses. That's, so I don't care if you're listening to this today, I don't care what you're facing. It is possible. You can do it. And, you know, we're so quick to give sympathy when people are going through a tough time, but what people really need is encouragement because yeah. it takes courage. It yeah. takes courage to face grief. It takes courage to overcome tremendous loss. Anyone can say, oh, I'm so sorry for you. And, and that's, but, but your pity doesn't help them heal. It, it does not help them heal. Like, you know, what they need is encouragement that, that they can do it and then help to actually do it. If you want to be, you know, don't tell someone you're sorry for their loss, do something to help them. <laughs> you know? What? Okay. So, so let me ask you, because I, I mean, when you were talking about that, that's what I was thinking. How, right. can, how can I help you the most right now? If you're my yeah. friend and you're grieving and I say, I'm so sorry, you know, for your loss, I feel so much compassion for you. How can I help? What kind of support do you need from me? Yeah. And so I think it depends on your proximity and relationship. So what I really want to encourage is if you're a very close friend, if you're someone very close, I'm going to ask you to volunteer to be that point person. And I coach, I coach the people that are working with me um, to find a, a, a buddy or an advocate, someone who's going to help them navigate and coordinate people who want to help, you know, funeral details or paperwork, all this stuff. It's crazy to me that it's like planning a wedding, planning a funeral is, except for you're with not a lot of mental, like you right. firing on all cylinders. So um, if a grieving person can have enough you know, mental clarity to find someone. But if you're close to someone, just volunteer yourself. Say, I will coordinate help. I will and communicate with them about what, what are okay boundaries and not okay boundaries. Clean their house, do their laundry, buy them bring groceries them, and bring them food. 
bring them food and please, please don't just bring them casseroles and cheese and dairy and heavy stuff. Like bring them healthy food, bring them things that are going to help support their body, nurture their body in a healthy way. Cause that's another, when you go through grief, neurologically speaking, and your hormones go so crazy. And then if you add alcohol and ice cream or just unhealthy stuff, it just, it, it feels good in the moment, but you're undermining the whole process because you're just perpetuating all that stuff. So as much as they can, you know, check in with them to make sure, ask them, are you sleeping? Uh, are you drinking enough water? Uh, have you eaten today? Like be there. Are you remind- drinking too much alcohol? Yeah. Are you drinking too much alcohol? Another great thing, again, if you're close and it's appropriate is make sure that don't let them isolate, you know, make sure they're talking yeah. to least one person a day they're having some kind of conversation offer to go and just say I will come and just sit with you like just be with people in their grief they don't need you and can I I just want to release everyone from the like burden or expectation to say the right thing can I tell you there's nothing nothing that you are going to say that is going to fix it for this person you are not going to magically come up with the right string of words that somehow makes it okay for them. So just be with them in their time of grief. Like, Do, do you think that people worry that they'll say something to make it worse? Yes. And you, people will, people will. So just <laughs> don't, I mean, don't intentionally or obviously like try to say something hurtful, but I guarantee you well-intentioned people say the most, because you're ignorant until you go through it. It's like having a baby and, and until you've had kids, you think you have, know the right thing to say. And you think, I'll give you all the right parenting advice. I have no idea. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's so exactly like that. And so I just want to, you know, I just want to free people from this responsibility of like saying the right thing or saying the wrong thing, you know, say what's on your heart, understand. And for, and I, teach people literally it's a lesson in one of my courses is like the dumb things people say and how to handle it because (laughs) no they just don't know and and can can you can you give that to the people that are trying to support the people that are grieving please yes (laughs) what dumb thing not to say I'll give you a couple and a couple that have been said to me do not say they're in a better place Mm. I know my mom and my son are in a better place. I, my son struggled with a drug addiction and I'm, you know, I know he's not in pain. He's good. I'm not worried about him. It's me that is hurting now. You know, like the fact that he's there does not like it's, it doesn't do anything. So, and a lot of people say that, don't say that. Don't say the, this was one of the worst ones, you know, because I have a daughter Piper. I, I literally had one lady say to me, well, at least you have another have another child. I, I have an only child, so I would be really devastated if I lost oh my, my child. As if they're like a pair of shoes or something and you just have an extra in the back. Like, don't say that. Please don't say that. You know, I'm trying to think of some other ones. Oh, I had, if it makes you uncomfortable, just to own that it makes you uncomfortable, but don't minimize. I remember literally it was a one month after my son passed away and I was back at work and it was a tough, it was the one month like anniversary. It was a mm-hmm. tough. And I was sitting there for lunch and one of my coworkers said, how's your day? And I said, you know what, today's a really tough day. It's one month, you know, since my son died. And she said, oh, but other than that, how's your day? Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? <laughs> I wish I was. So I just made a 
mental note, and this is what I teach people to like, know who is safe to share your feelings with and who isn't, you know, like. But, that, but that's, I mean, that is a great example of how people feel so uncomfortable in themselves. Right. As opposed, as opposed to saying, oh my gosh, Kelly, even you just saying that makes me feel uncomfortable because I feel badly and I don't know the right thing to say to you. Yeah. Or even say like, I can't even imagine. I can't imagine. Yeah. I can't imagine what you're going through right now. Yeah. I can't imagine what you're going through. Please share with me so that I can, you know, try to understand and be a sense of, you know, some support and, and extending you some compassion right now. So for friends and family, I'm just, I'm just circling back because I really think like, if you have a group of friends, here's another thing you can do. Nominate one person to be the spokesperson, you know, as much as you can minimize having to repeat things a million oh. times, mm -hmm. you know, if you have a group of girlfriends and say, just nominate one person to communicate and be the representative and offer the help and do the stuff or whatever, because you get this inundated with all this love and support that's like overwhelming the first couple of weeks. And mm -hmm. then it rise up. Oh, here's another thing you can do. Literally put a reminder in your phone. Once a month. Three months down the road, six months down the road, because I promise you everyone else has moved on with your life, but that person is still really grieving the loss. And it will yeah. mean if you circle back and say, hey, it's been six months. How are you doing? Yeah. Because I, I, nobody's I, asking anymore. And yeah. that I remember I have, uh, I have a friend who lost her husband to cancer and um, it was about three years for her. I mean, she has a, she has a son and I remember, you know, just every, every little while it was like, Hey, how are you doing? What's going on? How are you feeling? And just so that you know that other people are, are thinking about you. Mm -hmm. And if you can, you know, and we were chatting about this before, like put the actual date, you know, in your phone, because I, I promise you for the first year, at least every yeah. date, because it's, especially the first year it's the first xyz it's the right. first whatever the first mother's day the first birthday the first anniversary the first you know christmas the first whatever mm -hmm. all these holidays that you used to share with the person that you loved who's no longer with you and again you don't have to fix it for them you don't even have to do a special gesture it just would mean so much to say like hey i know today's whatever i'm thinking about you you know just yeah like that um would go a long way but i think people you know they don't do that because but the other thing too is they're like oh well if they're having a good day i don't want to i don't want to bring it up and remind them can i tell you that <laughs> it's not like they forget <laughs> that so and so died right. like, they're not gonna like mess up their delusional like good day that they forgot about the loved one that they lost so no just, and i mean and, and even you know even if you are having a good day and we and we talked about this last week it's that sense of um it it can't be either or you know it's not you're happy or you're sad you've right. moved on or you're still grieving it's mm -hmm. like it's like helping people recognize that you can hold both and in the same container yeah and i think that's maybe that's part of why people have a hard time yeah 
Yeah, because most people live in an either or experience and they don't want to interject. I mean, it's pretty, I can't think of a day that goes by, especially with my son, you know, and I call them little pockets of sadness, you know, and it might be, it might last 10 seconds, it might last 10 minutes, you know, it might be triggered by a song or a smell or a food or a picture of him, like, you know, he's still very much with me. And I also have, you know, my daughter and I actually, we just the other week, we sat on the couch and thought of like his favorite songs. And we just played on songs that we know that we love. He loved, Uh Uh just laughed and and remembered good times with him. And so not every day when I think of him is necessarily sadness, but more, more often than not, it is. But I also have amazing moments in my day as well, you know, and I do awesome things in my day. It's just part of the fabric of my story now, you know. Can can you also um, share what you told me last week about, you know, this this time would be when your son would be graduating from college? Yeah, yeah. So um, a lot of his friends are graduating from college, and that's another thing. Like, it just Facebook memories. I love and hate Facebook memories. <laughs> Because it brings, so now, this is this past week, Facebook memories four years ago was him graduating from high school. And so that's what's coming up in the feed. But his friends are graduating from college and I was seeing, you know, their families posting pictures and I was so thrilled for them and so sad at the same time, you know, I'm not seeing my son graduate from college. And, and I wanted to speak to it, but then I caught myself because I'm like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to dampen, you know, the mood. I don't want to be the wet blanket. I don't want to be whatever. And then I'm like, no, like we can do better. We can do better. Like they are completely entitled. They should own their joyous celebratory moment. And I celebrate completely. And I should be able to own my heartache that I don't get to experience that. And they, we can, as friends, share in each other's experience without it stealing from one another. Like my sadness should not take away from their joy and they should not be afraid to express their joy out of fear that it's going to compound my sadness. Like we can have both of those things. We can communicate and share both of those things and and they're not in competition with one another. No. One doesn't take from the other or it doesn't have to actually. A lot of people let it, but the point, it doesn't have to. Well, and even, and even I imagine for the, you know, the friends whose kids are graduating, if they, if, first of all, I would imagine that they would be thinking about, oh, I wish, you know, I wish your son was still here, right? Mm-hmm. I wish Quentin was still here. I wish he would, was partaking in all of this stuff too. We really miss him. Like, I'm having, this, was- I'm having this happy experience and I still miss him. And I wish they would say that, you know, one of, one of um, my son's friend's mom, so she posted a picture of her son and I liked it or whatever on Facebook. And then when I finally did write my post, she's like, I'm so glad you said this. I noticed my heart sank when I saw that you liked his picture and I thought of you, but it's like, she didn't reach out and say anything to me. You right, know, right. why can't we just have these conversations? Right. Why-, why can't we just be real? Yeah. Like... There's room, there's plenty of room at the table for both, you know, for both experiences and expressions and all that kind of stuff. So I feel like it's almost a protective mechanism. It's like, well, I don't want to say anything because I don't want to hurt you even more. But in the mm-hmm. same way, by not saying something is not really honoring you either. I know. Yeah. <laughs> 
my son is dead. Like, there's nothing that you can say that's going to hurt it more. Like, there's no more that you can do as a relationship. Yeah. Like, are there ignorant things that people say? Yes. Like, and should you not, as much as it depends on you, not blatantly or try to say something, you know, insensitive or hurtful. But this whole, like, see, this is what politically correctness has done to us. Like, we're so afraid. We're so, like, trying to be politically correct that we have stopped being real or trying to relate or ask questions or get to know someone's experience. We're just trying to stay at a distance and not offend them. And that right. is a relationship. No. Like understandings and offense and all that happens in a relationship, but that's part of like the beauty of relationship. Your stuff gets intermingled and it's messy. It's messy, you know, and that's part of just the way that it is. And so if we stop being willing to to be misunderstood or to say the wrong thing or have the wrong thing said to us, then we're going to just live. And that's where we're going. We're just going to live in little silos, you know? So, and grief is a big one. Grief is a big like taboo subject that people are just awkward around. And well, I, th I think grief, and I just, I just said this before we started this podcast. I think it's this whole, it's just your feelings. People don't express their feelings. And so you know, I, I think that this, is, this, because there's so much that we've been dealing with, you know, it really, this time in our lives is a really beautiful opportunity to start getting real. Yeah. To start being real, to start expressing what's really going on and to start being curious. You know, I'm, I'm being curious about me and I also want to be curious about you because all of us want to feel connected all of us want to feel like um our feelings matter yeah our life matters um so you know how do we reach out to each other to create that sense of intimacy and feelings of value and belonging well that's that's the opportunity that tragedy brings and it's really hard to, you know, it seems almost offensive to say that, but that's the truth. You know, when tragedy comes, it's a great opportunity to realign yourself and recalibrate yourself and move forward in a different way. And as a nation, that's the opportunity that sits before us. Tragedy has struck our nation. Now, how do we want to move forward? And all the same principles apply. If you want to stay stuck in the past, if you right. want stuck in unforgiveness if you want you need someone to blame like if that you know if that's your goal and that's your end then you can pursue that but it, you know the point is we collectively as a nation what do we believe and what do we want if the, if we're clear about those two things if we can get united even if we can just get united on what we want what we want i was going to say because people have all sorts of different beliefs you're never right. going to get but people I mean, to agree release, on beliefs but as it relates to race relations and whatever, but yeah, it, let's just stay with what we want. Like then the path for getting there becomes a lot more easy to define. But as long as it's muddled, as long as we can't have unity around um, how to move forward or even that we should move forward, like it's going to be incredibly difficult and people are going to stay stuck, you know? Well, and I, I also think that goes back to acceptance. Yeah, you know that we're we're all different, and we're all in different stages and places, and we all are different, experiencing different emotions. You know, at the same time, 
Um, yeah. And so how do we learn to accept each other? Because, because for me, I, I feel like if you said everybody wants world peace, would people mm -hmm. say, nah, I don't want that? I don't know, maybe some would, but <laughs> I would think that most people would want world peace. You know, restoration, world peace, people being able to live with joy and enjoy, in communion, enjoy. And, you know, I, I, think, I think your whole, your whole focus on how do I want to move forward in restoration and peace, that, it's, that accept, it's that acceptance. And then also leaving all that stuff behind and saying, what can we create ahead? And intentionality, like that's the other, it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen naturally or on its own. Like right. so my pro, once you create this framework, then it's all about protecting the framework and looking at everything in your life. And it does it, is it in alignment with your framework or not? You have to, I'm talking TV, music, the people you surround yourself with, the books you're reading, the food you're putting in your body. You now have to evaluate everything to say, is this helping me with my framework or is this actually not helping my framework or, in, or is it incongruent with my framework? And most people don't do that. We're not that disciplined with our, our friend groups, our surroundings, all that kind of stuff. And so learning to do that and to have accountability to really make sure you do that is a huge piece of it too. I was going to say that means people have to actually live consciously. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and a lot of people it's easier to put blinders on and pretend like all that stuff outside is not going on. You know, I'm just living in my own little bubble world. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a choice, you know, it's absolutely a choice and you're accountable, and responsible for the outcomes of that choice. Uh -huh. Like I'm not going to force you to make the choice to do the hard work to deal with it, but then you don't get to come to me three or six months from now and say, I'm just as sad today as I was the day it happened. Like, you know, you haven't chosen to go through it. Like, and I, I don't, I think I mentioned this to you. Like there's crutches are for support, but physical therapy is the thing that gets you back in the game. Right. I am the physical therapy and I recognize there's a place for crutches and support and it's different for everybody. So maybe you need just crutches and support for a month or three months or six months, I don't know, only you know. But the point is when you're ready, when you've decided that you wanna get back in the game, then that's, then I'm your girl. I will help you get back in the game. And, and I even argue or contend that we're, you're gonna go back in the game stronger, more self-aware, having built up all these skill sets that you probably didn't have before. You're gonna go back in the game a better version of yourself than you came out of the game. But right. I decided that you wanna get back in the game. Like, right. And, and we talked about last week, you know, when, uh, when we were talking about when, when you stay stuck, you know, if you were to stay stuck, would that be honoring your mom? Would that be honoring Quentin? Right. You know, would, would they want to see you being stuck and sad and, you know, just hanging on to your grief and hanging on to um, just the sadness and despair? Or would they want you to feel love and joy and you know peace mm -hmm. absolutely 
like by by actually honoring living you can do yeah like most honoring thing you can yeah, do exactly. for the person who passed away is is to live cherish the life that cherish. you make the most of it and like get get back to being healthy and do amazing things that's the best that you can live if someone has made an impression on you whatever role they were in your life and they're gone the best thing you can do is go live the rest of your life in an exemplary fashion because the way you live after their death speaks about the mark they made during their life mm. they made a good mark on you if they had a good influence on you the best way you can honor them is to go live an amazing life because it speaks to that you know you are one wise woman kelly well this is hard-earned <laughs> wisdom let me tell you i know it is i know it is but I'm just passionate about it. I'm just very passionate about it. And I just, it breaks my heart when I see people who've gone through such horrendous, significant loss and then they give, you know, they, they lose, they, give up. they lose even more because nobody's told them or helped them to realize that they don't have to live the rest of their life or years and years under this cloak of grief and sadness and whatever. And, and so I will wake up as many people as I can, you know, I will help and show and, and be an example and create a whole bunch of other little examples so that, you know, one day it'll be, it'll be like recovering from a surgery. And that's the analogy. Yeah. Like it's, you had surgery. Yep. You had surgery. Yep. It was super painful. Yep. You may or may not have asked for it or planned on it or any of that kind of stuff. You have to take care of yourself. You have to heal yourself and get back to life like that. And, and now I got to go to physical therapy to rebuild my strength. Exactly. And to your point too, like, I'm not going to tell you how soon you need to get back to get into physical therapy, but there is proof that the sooner you start, the quicker the process is going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's an individual thing, but I don't think, I don't think, um, I don't think there's such a thing as too soon. Mm -hmm. As soon as the shock wears off, as soon as the shock wears off and you start to have your mental faculties, you can start engaging in the process of, okay, what do I believe about this? What do I want moving forward? And how do I begin building the stepping stones to move forward with intentionality? Like that's really all it is. And mm -hmm. you could, you're never too soon for intentionality. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the other thing, you know, that you, what you're doing right now is you're taking the most difficult part of grief and you're helping others deal with it, right? So you're taking your greatest heartache and suffering and turning it into a blessing for so many other people. And that is actually, that's step five of our process is finding a purpose for your pain. Yeah. And because if you think it's just some random act that happened to you, it's hard to move through it. But right. when you recognize that whether you asked for it or not, whether you saw it coming or not, it is meant to make you and others around you better. And so if we, if you can unpack the ways that you're stronger and better or more empathetic or have more clarity, whatever that is for you, I help people figure that out for themselves. And or how can you use this to help people around you? That's where the magic happens because mm -hmm. when you go through trauma or tragedy, it uniquely qualifies you to speak into other people's lives that you wouldn't be able to, right. you know, I can go talk to recovering addicts and they will listen to what I have to say because of what the price I've paid. So I have authority now that I wouldn't have had any other way. 
Right. I wish my son was here instead, but I absolutely am going to take advantage of the influence I have now to make a positive impact in his name. And what a privilege. I mean, as a mom, as a mom, the fact that I get to go share my son with so many people mm -hmm. get inspired to stick with recovery or enter into recovery or whatever because of his influence, like, that's such a gift, you know, like. That's really honoring his life. Yes. And that opportunities like that are before everyone. When you, when you lose someone or so, you go through something, whether it's volunteering or if nothing else, once you get a little down the grief path, you are now uniquely qualified to hold the hand of somebody who's earlier in the process because right. you only really know it until you've gone through it. So now once you've gone through it, you can, you can be a better friend for people going through it. You can be a listening ear. You, can, you won't say those silly things that are hurtful or ignorant or whatever. So like if you can't figure anything else out, those, those can be a purpose for your pain. And that's so helpful for us to move on to recognize that it's not purposeless. You know, it's not in vain. It's not just this awful thing that caused destruction and didn't bring any good. Um, good can come out of it. And the more you meditate on that, the more you recognize that and meditate on that, the easier it's going to be for you to move on and, and have healing and wholeness. So yeah, it's like, it's like the, um, the pain is, I forget what they, they say exactly, but it's something like, you know, the, the pain is inevitable, but the suffering is optional. Mm, that's good. That's good. That's just like somebody said, falling down is an accident, staying down is a choice. That's mm -hmm. true. Yeah. It's hard. And especially with grief, like people can get offended. I've had people, I know that not everybody, some people get offended at my message. The idea even that you can recover and live an amazing life after you lose a child is, is straight up offensive to some people. Mm -hmm. But that's okay. You can be offended and be sad, you know. I yeah, you can. It's it's your choice of what kind of life you want to live. Yeah. And this and the, and I think I said this <clears throat> to you last week. It's like you when you when you uh, experience somebody who died, right? Somebody who that you cared for immensely. Like the love that you have for them never goes away, right? You can mm -hmm. never forget them. It never goes away. They'll always be right with you, but you have to figure out how to reintegrate and redefine your life without their physical presence. Right. And that's a choice. Yeah. So, so your steps to help people get up off the floor, go back to physical therapy, get themselves stronger and then go out there and run the race again or <laughs> yep it's a beautiful thing kelly well i've come to believe that it's what i was put on this planet for so it's what i'll be doing yeah you found your you found your mission and your purpose i found it took and it took two back-to-back -to traumas -back and tragedies to get me here but like I almost wanted to say I wouldn't change a thing, but that's not true. I would rather have them here, yeah, but of course, not here. I plan to, you know, I'm not, it, it's not wasted on me. It won't be wasted on me. Like their losses, their, their being gone is they're, not. Yeah, their deaths and your loss. Yeah. Yeah. 
not wasted. No, you're, you, you're, you're turning it um, into and you're turning your darkness into a way to share and shed light for everybody else. Yeah. Which is a beautiful gift that you're giving the world. So thank you. No, it's my pleasure. So, so, so the last, so the last question um, that I want to ask you is how do you define real love? How do I define real love? Hmm. Real love is a choice. Real love is selfless. It's loyal. It's long suffering. And it's the only form of truth that there actually is. Like it's the only true thing that exists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, um, I mean, what I, what I say uh, is that the most important relationship you'll ever have is the one that you have with yourself. So this is all that loving and honoring your own emotions and your own journey and your own, um, suffering so that you turn it into these um, qualities of compassion and understanding and acceptance so that you can go and create this beautiful life with all of the gifts that you were given. Yeah. And you can't give away, you cannot give away what you don't, what you don't have. So you have to start um, with yourself because it's impossible. To, you, you Anyone, what you don't have. So if you don't have empathy or care for yourself, then you're not able to have it for anyone else. So, yeah. so how can people get in touch with you and find out more about your work? Yeah. So I am the grief guru all around town. So uh, the website is thegriefguru.com. And I do want to let people know. So I wrote a book and published a book called you're not crazy. You're grieving, which the first half tells my story and the second half um, outlines this book. But I like to offer for people when I go on shows like this that they can get a free copy of the audiobook um, by going to I'm not crazy, I'm grieving.com um, and you'll get the audiobook delivered to you. And I find especially if people are grieving, audiobooks go so much better, right? Because our concentration is shot and retaining mm -hmm. is one of the things they struggle with. So um, you can check that out there, um, but otherwise Facebook, Instagram, we have a YouTube channel. So we have little chats similar to this and about specific topics related to grief on the YouTube channel as well. So you can find me at any of those places. Okay. And I'll, and I'll make sure that I include that in the show notes too. So people can, we'll put the link up or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I'm not sure when this one will air, but we're actually middle of launching our uh, new community and membership so people can it's grief relief nation so it is people who are all committed they're all doing the physical therapy together because one thing that we know that accelerates healing is doing it in healthy community yeah who are going the same direction as you and can help you help hold you accountable encourage you support you so that's grief relief nation and that's coming out shortly um, folks it's kind of a hybrid of like online weekly lessons with practice like what is it you can do this week to, to see some improvement and progress and then like I said as well uh, Facebook community that's just encouraging and supportive and all that kind of stuff so I'm really excited about that because it takes both right it takes yeah. the information but it also takes community um, so super thrilled about that as well right so we will uh, you know we'll launch this I told you we'll launch this when you launch this <laughs> 
<laughs> so that we can help spread spread the spread the good news. Cool. And the yep. hope and the peace and the love. Yeah. So listeners, if you um, enjoyed this conversation or if it made you feel uncomfortable, but it gave you some insights and inspirations to show up differently, either for yourself or for somebody else that you know is going, you know, is grieving, um, then please subscribe to the Wake Up to Real Love podcast and share with your friends, uh, write reviews, recommendations, any suggestions if you want to hear more from Kelly or, you know, more of any other particular uh, topics. Um, because I am also here to help people wake up to real love, uh, shedding, you know, sharing more peace and inspiration and giving people hope to live an incredible life that I think we all are deserving and worthy of living. So uh, you can find me at Dawn Richard at The Awakening with Dawn on Facebook and Instagram. And um, I'm getting ready to also launch my own gig. So, so show up on Facebook and Instagram. You can find out more about me and my work uh, and helping people um, experience more real love in their lives. So, so, so honored for you to join me here, Kelly, and to hear your story and for you to share your story. And your work is really, really powerful and much, much needed in this world. So thank you so much for being here with me. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank you for creating the space, right? Creating the space and finding all the people with all the stories and all the tools so that people can live the way they were designed to live. That's what we were designed for, actually, is to live yeah. amazing, rich, full lives. So thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. All right. So listeners, uh, every day, wake up to more and more real love. You guys take care. We'll see you next time.